Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. That was great music, great singing. My word. Almost don't need to go any further. But you do need to fasten your seatbelt, guys. Our brother Phil is usually wise in his assignment of topics and passages for us preachers. So last week we began our summer series in Proverbs. And uh, David Hook started us off with an excellent introduction. But Phil assigned me, the guy whose messages usually run over time, um, he assigned me to address no less than five topics this morning. And then, you know, now if this happened, what, in May, I think, he was assigning topics. And shortly after we all agreed to our assignments, he uh, was kind enough to provide us all with a catalog of all the verses of Proverbs uh, arranged by topic. So I looked at that, and uh, you'll be pleased to know that we only have about 300 verses to deal with this morning. So, no, it's only a short message. Um, so I trust that you've all brought your lunches. Going to eat them. So our topics for discussion this morning, the short answer is from the Lord, but it's to cover Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and instruction, truth and falsehood, humility and pride, rulers, kings, and authority, justice and judgment. Ah, okay. As I said, uh, David introduced us to the book of Proverbs last week. He noted that Proverbs is part of a small group of Old Testament books including Job and Ecclesiastes, collectively referred to as the wisdom books. Uh, these books present a number of issues for readers and preachers, uh, especially those of us working in English. Um, in, but in, in, the, one of the issues, one of the big issues, is that most of these books, Proverbs is included, uh, are written in poetic form. And it's not just any poetry, it's Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is a unique genre with rules and formats that are rarely, if ever, seen in English or any European language poetry. And unfortunately, most of the uniqueness of the Hebrew poetical form is masked in most of the English translations. It's there, but you have to dig. You have to be really observant to see it. Um, so that's one issue, one big issue. The other, another big issue is that the individual proverbs, you know, these pithy one and two line statements, seem to have been extracted from their original context and then grouped together into the collection that we have today. 
So now when we use any individual proverb out of the book, we have to be careful uh, so that we don't do an injustice to the Word of God, but that we allow God to speak into the new situation the way He intends. So with that as a general background, let's dig in. The foundational question that the wisdom books wrestle with, wrestle with is expressed by Job in Job 12. And he said, Where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. It's not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not in me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? Proverbs provides us with the briefest of answers. Then it goes on to try to describe the nearly indescribable. Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then Proverbs 2, beginning at verse 1, says, uh, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding... Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. And then again in 1533, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. So, just from these brief passages, we have an answer to some of the topics that we have to address this morning. Human knowledge, wisdom, instruction, and understanding all originate from a living relationship with the Lord God. But it's not merely a whole hum time to listen to another boring sermon kind of relationship. This is going to take work. It's going to take prayer and persistence and prayer and study and prayer and reflection. 
This is, shall we say, university-level training that we engage. And we shouldn't expect that it will come easily. But through every experience of life, the Lord is teaching us. Have you noticed that his teaching method is that he gives us the test first and then the lesson? And it occurs to me that he uses that order so that we will recognize that we do not know and be ready to receive his instruction. Because most of the really good lessons of life, things that we really learn, we learn as a result of our blunders and mistakes. We are to call out for insight and raise our voices for understanding. And we are to seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. And then when we recognize that we do not know, that we are not wise, that we don't understand, and only then will we be in a position to receive instruction and knowledge and wisdom and understanding. But it's not automatic. And in most cases, we'll take years of work. That's one of the reasons why we're commanded to honor our parents. Why we are to stand before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Not this old man. Life is too short to make all the mistakes. So let's learn from others so that we don't need to make all the same blunders they made. But I need to underline something. We're not merely talking about human wisdom. We're talking about divine wisdom. Paul put it in his first letter to Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. He says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Humanity struggles to make sense of the world and the universe and our place in it. Now, these are fundamental questions that every worldview, every perspective on life has to answer. But when we exclude God, the creator of it all, from our considerations, We're doomed to foolishness. When we refuse to acknowledge that apart from God, there is no reason for there to be something rather than nothing. And when rather than conclude that there must be a God because something exists, 
when we come up with all kinds of improbable and impossible explanations for the origins of things, our deliberations are bound to fail. Rightly did David observe that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The book of Proverbs repeatedly echoes this same thought. Wisdom like truth and justice and mercy is an attribute of God. It is his character to be wise, to be just, to be true, to be merciful. Just as it is his character to be love. There never was a time when he didn't have these attributes. Wisdom and truth and justice and mercy describe our God just as much as love does. And he is the only source. So, you're fortunate. Five minutes in, we're, we're already dealt with one topic. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's our great privilege to be um, cooperating with the Holy Spirit in His work of transforming us into better reflections of the Lord Jesus. As children of God, we are to put on His nature. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in his letter to Ephesus in chapter 4. Just listen to the words. Ephesians 4 and 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, 
For we are members one of another. The truth might be uncomfortable. It might be inconvenient. It might require that I disclose my sin and abandon my pride. Being honest will give me, though, a confident assurance before God. Once I have received His forgiveness, and ultimately I will have that same confident assurance before others. But falsehood in all its forms ultimately is destructive. There are, of course, difficult situations. Proverbs 12:19 says, "Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment." Is it always true? What about the uh, Christian martyrs during the Reformation? Their lips spoke truth. But they were not established forever. They were put to death. And those who put them to death promoted lies and didn't last but for a moment. Many of them remained in power for years after the death of those who spoke the truth. What about people like Harlan Popov, who spoke the truth and was imprisoned and tortured for 13 years in Bulgaria because of his faithful commitment to the gospel. Those who lied to send him to jail went free. What about our brothers and sisters in various parts of this troubled world? What about these two pastors in Burma? for whom we prayed this morning, who are persecuted for their uncompromising faith in the Lord Jesus. Even setting aside the, the issue of faith for the moment, what about those who are in prison in Canada today? Because they told the truth, but because someone else with a better lawyer lied about them. What about the time that you were telling the truth, but your so-called friend was lying about you behind your back? For that matter, what about Jesus? He always spoke truth, and yet we crucified Him. And those directly responsible, the Pilate and the Jewish Sanhedrin, they lasted many years after that event. The fact is that truth does not always win out in the short term, nor even in our lifetimes. But that's not God's perspective. Just as it is God's character to be true, it is also His character to be just and righteous. So after the crucifixion, what happened? Jesus experienced his glorious resurrection and ascension. And regarding liars, God's final judgment is this. 
from Revelation 21. As for all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. about pride and humility. Proverbs 29:23 One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. The contrast between the proud person and the humble are presented throughout the Bible, especially in Proverbs. This theme of humility before honor opens up vistas of God's saving grace. Jesus himself set the example before us. Um, Paul reminded the Philippians, he says, he wrote, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus voluntarily humbled himself, became a servant. He chose to be born not in a palace, but as the child of a poor peasant couple. There were no financial means to allow for rabbinic training. And he himself had to learn a trade to support his family after Joseph died. At his choice, the only credentials he presented to the ruling authorities were his words and his deeds. He offered no defense at his formal trial and even submitted to flogging Crucifixion. But because he humbled himself, God the Father was well pleased to exalt Jesus to his side and has given him all power and authority. In a similar way, Peter reminds us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The negative is also there. The proud person sees no need of salvation, no reason to bend the knee to anyone. Daniel tells us about King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember how the, the Most High had given him glory and majesty, but Nebuchadnezzar's heart became arrogant and hardened with pride. 
And he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. What happened? Well, pride goes before destruction, says Proverbs 16:18. And the word translated destruction there means a breaking, like a bone being shattered or a tree falling. So Nebuchadnezzar went insane and spent seven years as an animal before he repented and was restored to his throne. If we're proud and arrogant, then we're headed for a fall. And the trouble is that proud people don't see this about themselves. They honestly believe they are better than others. Again, as the proverb says in 16.2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. The proud person feels innocent. Pride feels normal. He trusts his own self-analysis. He's not alarmed by what he sees. There are no warnings, no signs, no flashing red lights. Everything's good. So ultimately, what is the fall suffered by the proud? It was grace that brought Nebuchadnezzar to his knees. But if we fail to recognize that we are answerable to God, what happens is nothing less than eternal death. And that's what happens when you depend on yourself rather than the Lord. That's what happens when your life is based on your own good works instead of the grace of God. One of the very practical ways that we can walk in humility together is to confess our sins to one another. Again, the Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Rather than save face, we can humbly own up to our own sin. Because God has already justified us by His grace. And that as a gift. We are now free to be honest before God and with one another. We can be real about our problems. When we walk humbly in this gospel light, we experience that renewed fellowship and fresh cleansing and obtain mercy. When we come to a discussion of rulers, kings, and authority, and of justice and judgment, as seen through Proverbs, we need to remember what the king's role was. The king was an absolute monarch, and the sole supreme court justice. The king's word was law, and there was no appeal. Jesus makes it quite clear, though, that human authority of all kinds exists only 
by divine appointment. And Paul echoes this thought in his, in his letter to Roman, the Romans. But the sad fact is that all rulers, whether appointed or elected, are fallen human beings in need of redemption, in need of the wisdom that can only be obtained by humble submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And without that wisdom, our political leaders will be engaged in Groucho Marx's definition of politics. I don't know if you came across, you've come across this. Groucho Marx defined politics as the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. If we can find no other reason, this should be sufficient motivation to pray for our leaders at all political levels. Proverbs 16, verses 10 through 13, give us some interesting meat to chew on. Verse 10 says, An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. And verse 12 says, It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. Now, you put verses 10 and 12 together. 10 is obviously the ideal. Else, 12 wouldn't be necessary. Unfortunately, verse 10 was misused and misquoted frequently during the Middle Ages. And it was used to defend the doctrine of the so-called divine right of kings. The doctrine held that because the king was God's representative, when he spoke, he simply could not be in error. That's what it says. And then that was used to justify all kinds of ungodly behavior. When Israel demanded a king like the other nations, God reminded them in 1 Samuel 8 what such an office would cost them. But God had already made provision for a king in Deuteronomy 17, in which he commanded that the future king was to make a copy of the scriptures for himself. He was to hand copy it, and then to daily meditate on the word. But again, the kings of Israel, and after Solomon's reign, the kings of Judah and Israel, were fallible human beings who seldom obeyed the Lord. Proverbs 29.26 says, Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. God will ultimately be the one to establish justice. 
the king and our 21st century political leaders should be providing a just and true government that reflects the nature of God's eternal kingdom. That's what they should be doing. But we should never put our ultimate hope in our governments. Our hope should always be in the Lord God. He promised in the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ, that the government shall be upon His shoulder and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end over the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom in his first coming. He will establish it in his second so, in a, in, you know, in, in the kingdom of God is already here. But it's not yet been fully realized. So, the obvious question is, are we ready? Are we seeking the wisdom that can only come from above? And only to those who are humble enough to recognize their need of a Savior. Or are we still expecting to be able to please God with our own independent efforts? It's an uncomfortable question sometimes. How much of what I do am I doing on my own? And to what extent am I really submissive to the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your patience with us. Lord, you know we're slow learners. And we thank you that you continue to teach us, that you're patient enough to teach us again and again. And again, help us to get the message. Help us, Father. Help us to honor You. Help us to learn to depend on Your Spirit. Help us to receive that incredible good news that Your Son brought to us because of His humility, because of His dependence on You, because of His faithfulness, because of His love for us. Father, we thank You that He was willing to take the cross that was ours. We thank You, Lord, that He was willing to take um, the just punishment that our sins deserve. 
that He has taken it and taken it to the grave so that we need no longer suffer that. Help us, Father, to embrace to embrace the Lord Jesus, to receive from Him all that He has prepared for us. That we might shine as bright lights in this dark world. And we give You our praise and our thanks in that precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.